This is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Um. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region, particularly with a view to inform U.S. policy and businesses. In this episode, we interview the co-editors of a new book titled China's Expanding Strategic Ambitions. This book, the latest in NBR's Strategic Asia series, describes how China seeks to reshape the international system to serve its strategic aims, uh, and it presents policy options for the United States and its partners to address the challenges posed by a rising China. The co-editors are Dr. Ashley Tellis, Ali Sawinski, and Michael Wills. Let me briefly introduce our guests as their more extensive bios are listed in the show notes to this podcast. Dr. Ashley Tellis holds the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs and is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He specializes in international security and U.S. foreign policy with a focus on Asia and the Indian subcontinent. He served at the U.S. Department of State as senior advisor to the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, and he served as research director of NBR's Strategic Asia program for the past 15 years. Ali Sawinski is the Senior Director of Political and Security Affairs at NBR. She directs program management and project development for the Political and Security Affairs team. In addition, she serves as project lead for several NBR initiatives, including the Strategic Asia Program, the U.S.-Korea Next Generation Leaders Program, and the People's Liberation Army Conference. Michael Wills is the Executive Vice President at NBR. He manages NBR's financial and business operations, as well as the publications and outreach programs, including the Strategic Asia series. In this interview, we examine the history behind China's rise. We explore China's modern-day ambitions in Asia, ranging from its interests in Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan, to Southeast Asia and South Asia to Russia. And we identify the strengths and strategies that U.S. policymakers and businesses could leverage to strengthen the U.S. position as the United States seeks to manage relations with a rising power with competing objectives. We hope you enjoy this episode of Asia Insight. Ashley, Ali, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. So you all have published a new volume titled China's Expanding Strategic Ambitions. This book is part of the Strategic Asia series by NBR. Uh, The Strategic Asia program, now in its 18th year, offers an assessment of Asia's evolving strategic environment, and you generally look forward five years and beyond. Now, Ashley, since 2004, you've been the research director uh, of this program. In recent years, you've guided the series towards thematic issues, such as the nature of alliances and partnerships, or foundations of national power or strategic culture in Asia. This year's volume seems different. Um, could you tell us why did you and the team decide to start from China's perspective and then look outwards? I don't think we had an alternative in many ways because this volume is exactly what uh, the political necessity of the moment demands. After several decades of engaging China as a partner, the United States seems to be veering to the view that China is something other than a partner, that it is a strategic competitor. There are documents that this administration has issued in the last 18 months which clearly articulate that view. And so we thought it would be useful to take stock of what that actually means 
And before long, you get to the question of competition as intimately linked to ambitions. And therefore, uh, the idea of exploring China's international ambitions, the process of evolution of those ambitions, seemed to be just the thing to do this year. Just the thing to do this year. But how, so how did we get to this point in China's rise in 2019? Where did it all begin? I think it actually begins in 1978. Uh, though that is clear only in retrospect, right? Hegel had this wonderful line in The Philosophy of Right uh, where he talks about the owl of Minerva flying at dusk. And this is a great example of that insight that in retrospect, we see China's evolution as being driven by a set of objectives that have been in many ways unvarying, even though the means that China has used has changed over time. And I make the argument in my chapter that China's effort to recover, to reclaim centrality, the centrality that it enjoyed, you know, before modernity, is really something that was at the heart of the Chinese effort since 1949 under Mao, but never reached fruition in a way that Mao intended, but was definitely jump-started uh, by Deng in 1978. And China has not looked back since. And so you mentioned uh, China is driven by its uh, key objectives to make, uh, regain its centrality. Um, so what does that look like? What does China's strategic ambition look like now? I think there are many uh, facets to you know, that answer. Uh, clearly, China wants to be seen as one of the major players in the international system. That objective has already been achieved as a result of its economic successes. But I think if you look closely at China's behaviors in Asia, China's behaviors in the larger institutional apparatus of the international system, and in China's relations with the United States, uh, it is pursuing something more. It's pursuing a parity with the United States as a near-term goal. And I would argue, over the longer term, um, a, a, a desire for some kind of unipolarity if it can pull it off. But that is truly, I think, a long-term goal. Uh, certainly not something that we are likely to see in evidence over the next, say, 10 to 20 years. Unipolarity polarity sounds like a far-reaching, ambitious goal. Up until now, how has their plan gone? What grade would you give them? I think they've done remarkably well. Uh, at two th at two levels, one is they've disguised the object quite quite effectively. Uh, if you remember, for most of the uh, period between 1978 and 1991, the end of the Cold War, Deng counseled that China should uh, you know hide and bide, and some residue of that counsel still survives. But China's growth in power has become so manifest that I think the latest generation of Chinese leadership does not feel obliged uh, to follow that advice in precisely the way that, that Deng offered that counsel. Uh, so at one level, they've hidden the objective well, but at another level, their economic success has been so dramatic that they have reached the point where they can actually articulate their vision of greatness. And she has been unapologetic.
about talking about the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, the recovery of the Chinese dream, and so on and so forth, uh, without any penalty. And that, I think, is a remarkable shift uh, in the evolution from 78 to today. Something we hear often in the news is about the Belt and Road Initiative. Is that part of a disguise? Is that more uh, patent um, approach of China's strides towards unipolarity? How, do you, how does the Belt and Road fit in all of this? I see the Belt and Road as really being the central organizing concept uh, for China's effort to reshape the international system. And again, uh, this is an initiative that has many dimensions. Uh, At the most obvious, it is Xi's signature program. But I think it's more than just Xi's signature program. I think it reflects China's effort to recast the world in ways that will advance its own interests. And so let me sort of identify three dimensions of the Belt and Road Initiative that are worth paying attention to. At the economic level, It's really an effort to prolong uh, China's state-driven, investment-intensive economic strategy, the strategy they've pursued successfully since 1978. But because the internal market is now getting saturated, they're looking for opportunities abroad. And so at the most elemental level, Uh, The Belt and Road Initiative is a way to give China's state-dominated economic strategy a new lease of life. But it's more than just economics as well. It's also about politics. And China is looking to use its economic power through the Belt and Road to create a new set of connected nodes throughout the Eurasian landmass, as well as the rimlands of Eurasia, satisfying uh, indigenous needs for infrastructure while using the means of satisfying those needs to also build up its own influence and its own patronage networks throughout Asia, Africa, and Europe. That is political. And there is a third dimension, which is military, which is as you build up physical connectivity networks, there come new opportunities to project military power. And so it is no surprise to me that China is using especially its BRI-related investments along the Asian littoral uh, to develop new places and bases, which over time will become the coaling stations for China's 21st century military force. And so when you think of it as a composite of all these elements, economic, political, and military, I think you are compelled to reach the conclusion that the Belt and Road Initiative is not simply Xi's initiative, but reflects the larger ambitions of a resurgent China as it seeks to remold the international system to serve its interests. I would also uh, say definitely amongst those three different categories that you're absolutely right that there are various components and elements to uh, the BRI. It's not just economic, it's not just geopolitical, um, it's definitely not just military, but there's another component um, that it serves, which is the domestic factor as well. Um, the BRI 
is a way, it's become kind of a catch-all for a number of different projects, and it has become a way for Xi Jinping to even take credit and uh, reap the benefits of programs that were started under his predecessors. Um, so there are some BRI projects that began well before Xi Jinping took power that they now count as uh, under the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and what that does for Xi Jinping is it is um, a matter of prestige and uh, legitimacy for himself and also for the CCP, for the party. Um, it is kind of a way for them to advance rhetoric that they are uh, domestically, um, you know, this great nation that countries around the world respect because of the initiatives, the infrastructure that they're developing, um, the benefits and economic the economic benefits that they're bringing to the region. Um, so I think it serves a very strong domestic purpose as well, um, in addition to all of the other components. It's so multifaceted. So it seems there's an economic component, yeah. geographic component, geopolitical component, and domestic component. It sounds comprehensive. Actually, you says, say this has been remarkably successful. It seems they're firing on all cylinders. Are there any constraints to them reaching the end of their strategic ambitions? I think there are very significant constraints. Mm -hmm. And again, that is a dimension of reality that has been better disguised, but whose contradictions are becoming more and more apparent. Uh, let me touch on a couple of those constraints to illustrate the point. First, it is simply not clear whether China's investment dominated growth strategy can survive at a time when there will be increasing demographic pressures within China. China's population is contracting and aging simultaneously, and therefore its capacity to save is going to contract. And if its capacity to save is going to contract, it means that the Chinese state will have a smaller pool of resources. Yeah, with which a investment-dominated strategy becomes harder and harder to sustain. So there is an internal component. There's an external constraint, which is equally serious, which is the investment-dominated strategy, which succeeded so well so far, succeeded in part because the Western international community abetted it. It allowed China to use the global trading system to pursue asymmetric gains without significant penalties. Unfortunately for China today, there is a growing sense within the United States, as well as in Europe, and increasingly in the third world, that Chinese economic successes often come at costs which are shifted on to others. And so the forces of reaction have begun to mount. And we've seen this in the United States in the last two years of the last presidential election, where the consequences of China's success in terms of its impact on deindustrialization in the US and so on and so forth, are now be beginning to provoke political responses that are pushing uh, towards pushback. And as China begins to confront this pushback in the international community, in Europe and the United States, uh, the long-term future of its investment domination, uh, dominated strategy uh, becomes more and more questionable. Uh, so the real issue is whether China can make that transition from a strategy that has served it very well for the last 30 years to something that is as yet undefined and unclear. And I think the jury is out on that issue. Mm. 
in a way, uh, China needs to succeed, though. I mean, because the current regime has pinned its legitimacy now purely on uh, sustaining economic growth, continuing to enrich the population, achieving these broad, uh, ambitious goals to become a great global power, because there is no other source of legitimacy within the country. And this is not a government that has popular backing. This is not a government that has um, sort of ideological support from its population in the current global environment. And so we've talked of you know, this opening period of time here about China having a very clear strategic vision, which it does, but it's also in a high risk environment. Uh, Xi Jinping and the CCP have to succeed if they are to maintain their own positions, um, because uh, the risks of them failing to do so uh, are very serious for their own security as a regime. So it seems that the domestic factors in the foreign policy um, pursuits they have are closely interlinked. And I want to come back to uh, your earlier point about um, the international community's involvement in helping um, the pursuit of China's rise. But just to fill out the rest of the space of Chinese, China's strategic ambitions, so a key component of that vision uh, is to unify with Taiwan. So as we've seen China increase its strength and its jurisdiction, uh, how has its approach to managing relations with Taiwan changed? So I would say that you're right, Taiwan is an absolutely uh, core part of China's uh, strategic ambitions um, by definition. Um, it is important to China not only because of territorial sovereignty reasons, um, but also in uh, China's overall broader global ambitions. Um, if it fails at uh, unification, whether that is Taiwan uh, succeeding in declaring de jure independence, that would be a massive failure for China as a nation and would certainly constrain its ability to pursue its uh, other global ambitions. But uh, China's overall strategy towards Taiwan has been fairly consistent over the past few decades, and their goals for uh, unifying with Taiwan and ideally unifying peacefully with Taiwan, that underlying goal has not changed under Xi Jinping. Um, what has perhaps changed are some of the tactics that they've begun to employ. Um, and that shift uh, in our Strategic Asia volume, um, the chapter on Taiwan authored by Mike Chase, he identifies a significant shift um, when President Tsai took office in 2016. Um, so previously, there was a more favorable administration under President Ma, and China was a little bit more uh, cooperative, working with that administration. Under President Tsai, uh, we've seen a significant increase in uh, China's intensity in all aspects of its efforts to um, kind of bend Taiwan to uh, its objectives. So that is across the spectrum of um, economic pressure, um, constraining its diplomatic space internationally, um, and also uh, influence operations as a catch-all for some of the um, pressure and work that China does to influence domestic populations within Taiwan to be more pro-China and to uh, agree with kind of what China's objectives for Taiwan are. Um, so across all of those different parts of China's strategy, they've intensified their efforts um, and 
to a degree that I think Taiwan is really feeling more significant pressure now. But the overall objective, the overall strategy remains the same. And for the listeners who are less familiar with um, Taiwanese positions, what was the position that President Tsai brought that was different from President Ma? So President Tsai is from uh, the political party, the DPP, that historically has been uh, more, uh, to say pro-independence is not nuanced enough. Um, They don't believe that Taiwan should be independent tomorrow, um, but less pro-China. And so under the previous KMT administrations, um, China certainly prefers to uh, coordinate and work with those administrations. And still even under the DPP administration now, um, the mainland Chinese uh, government offices will only coordinate and talk with KMT officials. There's no official relationship or official interaction with the DPP. Mm, that makes sense. The social basis of support of the two parties are really, in many ways, what goes to the heart of the problem with Taiwan. That the KMT represents uh, exiles from the mainland who mm. sort of harbored the dream of one day going back uh, to a unified China where Taiwan would be part of the mainland. The DPP's social base of support is essentially people who have always lived on the island. And for them, separation from China was simply a fact of life. Because if one looks at the historical record since the 16th century, uh, Taiwan actually, quite contrary to Beijing's claims, has been functionally independent. I mean, there was probably just about one or two decades where the island was physically controlled by the mainland. So there are two different views that are clearly, you know, in contestation here. But uh, from Beijing's point of view, I just don't see how the challenge of Taiwan gets easier. Because with every passing decade, uh, those who have a memory of Taiwan being part of the mainland, which is the KMT's political base, uh, that memory becomes less and less salient. And most people who have gotten used to the idea of de facto separation uh, begin to grow in numbers. And most of the Taiwanese population, as long as China remains communist, are not eager to, uh, to reunify with China anyway, as long as the Chinese regime in Beijing remains what it is. So time is not on uh, Beijing's side. And that leaves uh, the leadership in Beijing with very, very difficult choices. So ideally, uh, peaceful unification would be wonderful if it could be achieved, but it appears more and more elusive because of the demographic trends inside Taiwan. And forceful unification would be catastrophic, even if China were to win. I don't think there's any Mm -hmm. doubt that in a narrow military sense, China could bring overwhelming power to bear. But what that action would do to China's reputation in East Asia, what it would do to the prospect of very active military balancing against China after such a crisis, and what it would do to US-China relations over the long term would be so dramatically different that I'm not quite sure uh, Beijing has actually factored in those costs. And so if you are uh, sitting in the Politburo thinking about these alternatives, I don't think that can be a very 
sort of satisfying or uh, a conversation that leaves you, you know, without anything but disquiet. Mm. This is enlightening because uh, China's management of Taiwan is often seen as a litmus test to see how China manages relationships with uh, the rest of the uh, nations in East Asia. So let's bring in some of the regional partners um, and alliances. So how does um, uh, countries like Korea, Japan, how do they fit into China's grand strategy for the region? Uh, so I would say that those countries you just identified, Korea, Japan, the Korean Peninsula more broadly, so both North and South Korea, um, are critical to China's broader grand strategy, first because of their geography. They're right next door, they're China's neighbors, and they always will be. Um, but beyond that, um, to take Korea as an example, um, Korea and the Korean Peninsula is an essential component of, of China's strategy. Um, it is focused on managing the North Korea situation in a way that maintains stability. Um, that's very foremost in China's concerns about North Korea, um, preventing war, um, but also ensuring that it maintains a voice in any negotiations about the future of the Korean Peninsula. Um, and so uh, the other side of that coin is that China seeks to uh, weaken the United States influence and presence um, in, on the Korean Peninsula. So the United States ability to kind of uh, set the tone for any negotiations, um, to uh, strengthen its alliance and uh, the ROK's uh, preferences for how things develop in inter-Korean relations. Um, and in, uh, again, in our, in our volume, um, Patricia Kim, the author of our chapter on what we call Northeast Asia, which is looking at North Korea, South Korea, and Japan, um, identifies uh, kind of three different strategies that China has employed to achieve its goals in this region of stability, increasing its influence, and uh, other states' deference to its preferences. Um, and those uh, three strategies are through public diplomacy, um, so, you know, touting a community of common destiny, which we've heard them, uh, in particular, uh, Xi Jinping say, um, that would be a community based on multilateralism rather than alliance relationships. So, uh, standing in stark contrast to the way that the United States has developed its uh, order in the region and in the in the world, um, and so. Public diplomacy is the first. Um, the second is through economic incentives. Um, and you see this particularly in the case of the ROK, but also with Japan, um, where uh, the economic weight that China carries when it comes to the ROK is a major component in any decision-making process that happens. Um, and you know, despite any kind of conflicts or disagreements that both Japan and the ROK might have in the security realm or politically, um, the economic benefits of cooperating with China um, continue to incentivize them to explore ways to work with China. Um, and that can be through joining Chinese-led initiatives like the AIIB or like the Belt and Road. Um, and it can also be, it manifests uh, in ways of those states, um, the ROK and every now and then Japan declining to join the United States 
um, in its initiatives. So particularly with the ROK, um, we see this in uh, perhaps the South China Sea, where we don't see as much support from the ROK for U.S. position in the South China Sea. Um, in the 2016 UN court ruling, the ROK did not um, issue an official statement supporting the ruling. And so some of that ties back to how China is able to exert that economic influence. And then the third final piece is its security strategy, um, which are, are you know, comprised of its military buildup, um, show of force, you know, it is just becoming a much stronger power and flexing some of those muscles. Um, we've seen lots of reports of uh, bomber flights where Chinese uh, bombers are kind of going out beyond where they traditionally have been flying as a signaling, a signaling of new capabilities um, and uh, kind of exerting that influence across uh, the maritime realm in China's immediate periphery. So given the strong draw of China's um, economic incentives, um, what it's doing politically, what options do, uh, do alliance partners like mm. Korea and Japan have uh, to not have to pick between mm. working with China or the United States? Well, in practice, uh, all the alliance partners have followed some combination of the following strategy try and deepen relations with the United States as much as possible, preserve the alliance relationship in good repair, because that is the ultimate guarantee of their security. But to do so in ways that minimize the offense uh, given to China. Now, to the degree that the alliances by definition create complications for China's security strategy, uh, simply happens to be a cost that everyone Greece has to be born because none of the alliance partners, either South Korea or Japan so far, are willing to walk away from the alliance partnership simply to appease Beijing. But there is a tension, right? The fact that they continue to rely on the United States becomes a source of continuing discomfort for China. So the strategy for mitigating that discomfort traditionally has been the use of economic instruments and diplomacy. And the fact that there has been a significant degree of economic integration between South Korea and China, and between Japan and China, especially in the reform period after 1978, provided that cushion that allowed all parties in the region to focus on joint gains, which come from trade, while minimizing the security inconveniences that arise from these institutional arrangements, like alliances. Now, whether this equilibrium between the economic and the strategic can be maintained as it has for the last 30 years is a good question because there are changes in domestic politics that are taking place in these countries. There are changes in the United States where we have begun to question the value of some of these alliances, both for regional security and our own interests. And as China grows stronger, there is a greater willingness on the part of the Chinese to push against institutional instruments like alliances in a way that China had previously been cautious about. So we are at that very interesting inflection point. We are, but that pushing by China is drawing a reaction from those same allies. So if you think back to Japan, South Korea, and going back to Taiwan too, 
all three of those countries, and let's treat Taiwan as a quasi-ally of the United States, um, during the reform period have benefited economically from increased trade and investment between themselves and China. But over the last, say, five or six years, for various reasons in each case, those countries have begun to try and diversify their economic strategies and are increasingly looking at Southeast Asia, for instance, as an investment destination, as a, a part of their global supply chains in favor of China, um, precisely because I think there's this concern that um, even while they're navigating this, this balance between the security side and the alliance with the US and this economic uh, relationship with China, not having all the economic eggs in the China basket is important for Tokyo's or Seoul's or Taipei's room for maneuver. Um, mm. And you see that same pattern reflected not just in Northeast Asia but across the region. Mm. So continuing with that theme of that tension between um, an economic incentives but also dealing with political challenges, if we look south and consider the same question in uh, the Southeast Asian bloc, um, how, do, how does the Southeast Asian nations fit within China's grand strategy? I would say from Beijing's perspective, there's a similar push. Um, Beijing wants to be the, the primary power. Um, traditionally, it has been the power that for at least the, the mainland Southeast Asian countries considered them tributary powers under the old imperial system. Um, this is also a region that has very high numbers of ethnic Chinese inhabitants. And during the early years of the, uh, of the Communist Party regime in the 50s, uh, there were widespread concerns in the region that these were potential fifth columns, you know, uh, potential communist sympathizers who were going to rise up and, and force revolutions within Southeast Asia and, and have that region become part of, um, of the communist bloc. What's interesting in Southeast Asia is that um, obviously it's a, it's a key area for BRI investments. It's a key area for China's military expansion. And you look at what's going on in the South China Sea and the militarization of of new islands that are being built uh, that are helping to, to bolster China's position there. Um, unlike Northeast Asia, I think there's a, there's a different response from the region. Um, mm. You have countries that are uh, much more obviously bandwagoning with China in Southeast Asia. Uh, I mean, Cambodia would be a clear example of this, where the Cambodian government has seems to have made the calculation that it will benefit its regime long term to just walk, walk lockstep with China and, and sort of turn its back on the rest of the region. Um, you have other countries in the region that are playing this same sort of hedging game uh, as, as Japan and South Korea. What's very interesting in Southeast Asia for, from my perspective is that the two US allies in that region, the Philippines and Thailand, are not behaving in the same way as, as Japan and South Korea. I mean, the Philippines under Duterte does not seem to be trying to bolster its relationship with the United States, quite the contrary. Thailand under the military government similarly is much more closely aligned with China, in effect, than it is with uh, traditional partners in ASEAN and the United States. Um, and the final thing I would throw out for Southeast Asia um, that our, our contributor to the volume, uh, Jai In Chong from National University of Singapore mentions, um, China's big threat to the region is that it, it challenges ASEAN centrality. This is a, a, Southeast Asia is a region that managed its way through the Cold War by essentially, as a collection of 10 small to middle powers, building some regional norms that said, we don't want the Cold War to intrude too much on our region, 
and we're going to build an institutional architecture that we, we hope the Soviet Union and the United States and, and China will all respect. And we're remarkably successful in achieving that. Uh, the challenge that China is posing to that architecture in the region now is that um, ASEAN is effectively being split. And uh, Ian, in his chapter, argues that you might need to see sort of sub-ASEAN groupings, like-minded countries, working outside the ASEAN framework, which is a big departure for, for regional governments, in order to counter the challenge that China poses. Simple fact is that Southeast Asia today has a primacy in US-China competition of the kind that it simply did not have in American competition with the Soviet Union. And so the notion of ASEAN centrality made complete sense when the region was peripheral and not the central theater of contestation. In effect, ASEAN centrality boiled down to we will develop local norms that provide us immunity against the great power competition that is occurring elsewhere. And as long as we are left alone, that immunity would allow the region to sort of develop indigenous forms of cooperation. And it's that vision served ASEAN well throughout the Cold War. Today, uh, Southeast Asia is a very important theater in US-China competition. And so you see China making very deliberate efforts to split ASEAN because what it really wants is to absorb individual countries, if not the region at large, into a Chinese sphere of influence where it minimizes threats emerging from the region to itself. And to the degree that there are US alliance partners still lodged in Southeast Asia, those become prime targets for neutralization in terms of Chinese strategy. And so there is a real question about whether ASEAN centrality, which was a product of very unique circumstances in the Cold War, can actually survive in the new environment where Southeast Asia is a direct uh, and active target in the competition between the United States and China. It seems as ASEAN is, as you said, maintain a, a form of immunity throughout the Cold War years and now gets more intricately involved in China's expansion. Another place that has practiced this form of neutrality is our countries in South Asia. So how does South Asia, expanding out to the Indian Ocean, um, how does uh, that connect with what China sees in the next 20 to 25 years? South Asia is interesting because the neutrality that at least India advertised with great success uh, during the Cold War is now functionally challenged uh, by the reality of the rise of Chinese superpower on India's doorsteps. Again, like ASEAN centrality, Indian neutralism derived from the fact that the core of the Cold War competition was really occurring elsewhere and not on India's doorstep. It occurred in Europe, it occurred in Pacific Asia, but did not really involve South Asia directly. Now that neutralism, non-alignment, strategic autonomy, whatever terms of art India chooses to use, those concepts are being challenged by the fact that India is, whether it wants it or not, inextricably drawn uh, into 
US-China competition in tandem with its own competition with China. And Chinese strategy towards South Asia, I think, has been quite multifaceted. It's focused on building some modicum of cooperation with India in order to neutralize India's incentives to ally with outside powers like the United States. So keeping India apart from the US or from any outside balancer has been a consistent part of Chinese policy towards India going back to the 1950s. At the same time, China has made uh, privileged investments in Pakistan because Pakistan has turned out to be a very useful vehicle because of its own competition with India in balancing India's rise within South Asia itself. And so if you think of Chinese strategy towards South Asia, I would say it has three components. The first is neutralize the Indian challenge by a modicum of economic cooperation and encouraging India to maintain its traditional distance from the United States. Second, invest in Pakistan as a way of sustaining Pakistani challenges towards India, such that India is still engrossed in dealing with the problems of maintaining its own regional privacy, as opposed to using its resources outside of South Asia. And the third would be investing actively in the smaller South Asian states, like Bangladesh, Nepal, the Maldives, and now even in Afghanistan as a way of penetrating South Asia with a Chinese presence that over a period of time, hopefully, will pay off in terms of both increased diplomatic influence and potentially military access. So it seems we can't talk about China's strategic ambitions today without keep going back to the history um, and how China's come here. So a country that's we've mentioned multiple times now is the Soviet Union. And as we look to current levels of Chinese-Russian cooperation, uh, many observers uh, have noted increased uh, uh, cooperation across different uh, lanes. How would you uh, assess uh, the current state of Ch Chinese-Russian um, uh, relations and, and how does Russia fit within China's bigger picture? I see uh, Sino-Russian relations today as being one of alignment, uh, though they will probably never reach the point of being a genuine alliance. Uh, China does not need an alliance with Russia. The alignment that it has in terms of political cooperation, technical cooperation, and increasingly economic cooperation uh, will serve Chinese interests. But I think the illusion that we sometimes sort of entertain that there are structural contradictions that still persist between Russia and China that will prevent close coordinated action vis-a-vis -vis the United States or vis-a-vis the West. I think that is proving to be increasingly a fiction. That for different reasons, Russia sees China as a necessary partner and the Chinese see Russia as providing an important uh, partnership in China's own uh, challenge of managing the West. In very practical terms today, the question that I think hangs over the uh, Sino-Russian relationship is whether Russia, how comfortable Russia will be with China's consistent 
and expanding penetration in Central Asia, which has traditionally been Russia's sphere of influence. Uh, to the degree that the Russians acquiesce to this penetration out of necessity, because the Chinese have the resources, the Chinese have the vision, and the Chinese are making Central Asia a very active part of the Belt and Road Initiative. To that degree, uh, it'll only confirm what I think appears increasingly the case from the outside, which is that Russia is becoming a junior partner in uh, the Sino-Indian partnership, no matter how much uh, the leadership in Moscow may want to pretend to the contrary. So we've covered a wide geographic scope from East Asia to Southeast Asia, swinging down to South Asia and Russia. And so bringing it all back to our primary listeners who are um, the run across the U.S. policy audience, uh, business community, uh, think tank members. So given the enormity of this challenge, where does the United States begin? What are the first couple of key strategic steps that you would advise U.S. policymakers make to start to manage this challenge? Oh, easy question. <laughs> there are several dimensions, I think, to that answer. The first is to recognize that Sino-American competition is here to stay. It's not an aberration. It's not transient. It's not going to disappear simply because both sides pursue better policies or more helpful forms of engagement. The competition exists because of structural factors. Two countries, both powerful, both with a very strong sense of itself, with sufficiently important differences in interest. That is the reality, that is the bedrock on which this competition is going to persist. So we've got to recognize that there is going to be competition and that it's a permanent feature of future US-China relations. That's point number one. The second point I would make is that the fact that there is con competition doesn't mean that it is simply confrontational. In fact, I think it's going to be an entirely new experience for the US because it's going to be a persistent mix-sum game where we will be tied together economically in terms of technology, in terms of cooperation with respect to maintaining global order in different ways, even as we compete. As, as states with different interests in Asia, in Europe, and the wider environment. So US policy will have to learn new modes of flexibility in dealing with a country that is simultaneously a partner in some areas and a competitor in others. And the third point that I would make is that 90%, and this number is fictional, but it illustrates the point, 90% of the success that the U.S. will enjoy in this competition actually will have less to do with anything that happens in Sino-American relations. And it will fundamentally derive from the policies the United States pursues at home. And so the entire challenge of managing internal American uh, affairs in the economic realm, in the political realm, uh, in the ideational realm, these will be far more consequential for our long-term success 
in the competition with China, then anything that narrowly happens in the bilateral relationship with Beijing. Do you see any areas um, in domestic policy uh, that impact our foreign policy that are being underutilized right now? Can you identify some core American strengths that we could push more on now, as you say that we should be looking more inwards rather than outwards? Well, the great American strength has been the innovativeness of our own society and the fact that we were able to maintain a global trading regime that ultimately served our interest. Uh, to be sure, there were some countries that gained asymmetrically at our expense. And I expect that in the years to come, the US will look at ways of revising those relationships. But if as long as we can maintain the innovation and the dynamism in American society and use a trading network, especially with our friends and allies, to increase our own relative growth rates, I think those remain our strengths. Those remain material strengths which we do not need to compromise. Yeah, so I definitely agree that, on the, especially on that last point, that I would say that our alliance relationships, while that's not a domestic factor, um, but it is perhaps, especially right now, an underutilized strength of the United States. Um, our alliance and uh, close partnership rela relationships in the Asia region are a distinct comparative advantage that the United States has over uh, its competitors. So over China, over Russia, and in the face of, as Ashley highlighted, greater Sino-Russian so, uh, uh, cooperation, the United States needs to tend to these alliance relationships and help uh, bolster the democratic institutions um, with our alliance partners, as well as some of uh, the countries on kind of the periphery in Central Asia, as we look at the Sino-Russian relationship, to strengthen the types of democratic institutions that we hope to see in the region in the face of increasing influence and increasing pressure um, from, from Russia and China. And so, you know, as we think about how we leverage our alliances and um, what benefits they bring to bear in uh, achieving U.S. Uh, objectives and preferences in the region, it's an area that I, we, we can't stand to ignore. We cannot continue to um, erode those relationships and expect to have the same level of uh, deference and uh, results in, in getting what we want done in the region. Right, because how many formal alliances does China have? One. <laughs> Maybe one-ish. Yeah. Michael, did you want to weigh in on this? Back to the domestic factors, I think two other things spring to mind. Um, you know, the United States enjoys still very favorable um, economic and demographic uh, profiles uh, in terms of domestic wealth and GDP per capita compared to China. Uh, if you look at China's demographic picture right now, there's a very real risk that China grows old before it grows, grows rich. And it's a rich country, but on a per capita basis, it's still not there. So. Um, the risk of the middle income trap from Beijing's perspective is very serious. Um, you know, the United States is, is clearly, um, even with a shrinking share of the global economy, still the major global economic power. 
And all of the trends that underpin that, the innovation that Ashley talked about, um, the demographic trends, you contrast that with, say, Europe, everything still looks quite good from, from the U.S. perspective. The other thing, though, that um, uh, I would mention, and it's not in this year's volume, but it speaks back to one of our contributors from a few years ago, um, uh, comes back to, I think, you know, the U.S. political system and its ability to, to grapple with the challenges of a more competitive environment. And so what I mean by that is, you know, back through the post-Cold War period, the U.S. has enjoyed um, relative you know, global predominance without a peer competitor. Um, and, and the United States has had the luxury of being able to make mistakes or poor investments or poor choices without too much consequence. Um, I think what we demonstrate in this year's book, uh, what the challenge that China poses today is, is one where you know, the US has got um, less room to make those mistakes going forward. Um, and part of that, I think, you, you're beginning to see reflected on Capitol Hill. Um, what's interesting to me is that successive US administrations, the last three at least, have all tried to promote dealing with China as a, as a primary part of their engagement with the rest of the world. Um, but we're beginning to see the, the, the start of sort of bipartisan consensus on the challenge that China poses and the need for the United States to respond to that effectively um, in a way that I, I personally haven't seen over the last couple of decades. And I want to end uh, this train of discussion with one other point. Uh, it comes back to who we are and what we represent in the world as being an intangible but fundamental asset that the United States has. I think the United States as an open society, as a democratic society, as a liberal society, has been an advantage which is hard to quantify in, in sort of numerical terms, but has sort of, it has minimized the offensive character of America's predominance in the world. Because even though people see the United States as this huge concentration of capabilities, it's a concentration with the capacity to disarm because it is fundamentally an open system. And the fact that the U.S. has employed its openness to build a rule-based order that, even though it served our own narrow interests, also provided valuable collective goods for the rest of the planet is something that we don't want to lose sight of because particularly at a moment when American nationalism seems to be on the rise and everyone is trapped by uh, you know the calculus of self-interest it's important to realize that enlightened self-interest sometimes requires us to do things for others even if there are no direct payoffs to us immediately but which serve our strategic interests well over the long term so maintaining America's liberal character, both within and without, I think is too precious a resource to compromise or to sacrifice lightly in a moment when the competition to come will be as much material as, as ideation. You raise a really good point about the ide ideational component because in the current um, discourse, mostly we talk about the material competition um, and less about the ideological components of what we're facing. And 
you know, it, it makes me wonder, in the absence of American leadership, is there any other um, potential successor to take this role, um, either as individual, as a coalition, to manage this relationship with China? None that I can see on the horizon. Uh, we usually think of leadership as being a function of material capability, and that's absolutely true. I mean, you rarely had leaders who don't have material preponderance able to exercise that role, and if they do, they're transitory. Uh, the only other country that in principle could take the American baton uh, is China, because it has material capabilities, or the Europeans. Mm. But given uh, the pressures that European unity uh, is confronting today, I wouldn't count on the Europeans as being able to, uh, to run with that. Uh, and I certainly don't think China can, even if it has the material capabilities, because it represents a different kind of ideational order that I don't think will prove particularly attractive or persuasive to the rest of the world. It'll be an order that, that is focused very much on China's own self-interest, rather than building a liberalism that sort of empowers and raises others. And that's not the kind of leadership that is apt to garner loyalty from the part of other countries. And so the US is really unique in that sense. Um, and you know, this is a asset that is worth preserving. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think if you think about the other countries in the region that you would, you know, if you go through them and say, would this country step up? There are components of the US-led system that some of our like-minded democratic partners would still champion and attempt to uh, lead. And what I'm thinking particularly of is how Japan stepped up when the US pulled out of the TPP um, and kind of pulled the CPTPP together. Um, but that's one component that that you know they were able to achieve because the U.S. had kind of teed it up, um, and Japan has its own uh, kind of disadvantages because of its history in the region, um, and it doesn't have the material capabilities that you know to confront a country like China. So, in components, there are countries that might attempt to kind of continue what the U.S. has started, but I don't see any country that can kind of fill that void in its entirety. I mean, and this speaks back to, I think, a, a, something we've talked about through our work together on the program for a number of years. But if you look at this broader competition between international, different forms and different uh, conceptions of international order, um, China's ambition really is to prove that a state-led authoritarian model can work to lift a country from relative poverty to global great power status. It's a high-risk strategy. There are, there are many ways that it could fail in the coming years. Uh, but if it succeeds, if China succeeds in this quest, then that's a model that other governments around the world, and we you know, think about a post-Putin Russia, think about other authoritarian regimes across Asia, across Southwest Asia, in, in Latin America, um, that becomes a, a model that's directly in contradiction to what the United States has built over the last 75 years. And I think, to answer your question, Dan, like-minded countries, Japan, the EU, Australia, they can hold the ring for a little while, but they can't lead. 
and the US needs to come back and, and lead in order to kind of show that this this liberal democratic open model of a global order uh, still is sustainable and, and beneficial for the world. And I think the point that needs to be emphasized is that leadership that Michael talked about is not a leadership that needs to be exercised as a favor to others. It is fundamentally in America's own self-interest that that leadership be exercised. Because to the degree that you can create a world order that protects your interests, that is a huge investment. And so while it is certainly an order that's beneficial to others, evokes uh, the support of others, um, it is fundamentally in America's self-interest. And so we ought not to think about this as something that the U.S. is doing, uh, which out of largesse or something that is optional. Right? It is an investment in American national security. Uh, and that is, again, something that ought not to be lost sight of, given the debates in our own domestic politics. So we shouldn't lose sight of the value to current U.S. interests. Um, so what we also shouldn't lose sight of maybe the ne next five to 10 years to 20 years, um, which is the real value of the Strategic Asia program that looks not just historically, but prospectively. And so if we're looking down, you know, at least in the near term, six months to a year, what would be some milestones that indicate to you that the United States is, is or is continuing on the right track? Well, I would start by looking at some of the domestic priorities that we pursue. If we can get our arms around a sensible immigration policy, I think that would be a great start. Because when you look out, the U.S. certainly has an advantageous demography, but you cannot presume that those demographic advantages last forever. And a fundamental characteristic of American demography is that we still do quite poorly by many indicators relative to our competitors elsewhere in the world. And our traditional solution for managing these disadvantages have always, has always been immigration. And so to the degree that we can maintain our access to the global talent pool, that provides us a huge advantage. And so it's tragic that immigration, which in many ways is one of the hallmark characteristics of ourselves as a country, has now become a source of great contestation, right? And so to the degree that we can have a national consensus on what a sensible immigration policy would be, I think that would be a huge step forward. Uh, second aspect, and I think the president talked about that last night in the State of the Union address, is really looking at America's physical infrastructure. Um, we have not kept up our physical infrastructure investments after the high tide of big, big contributions in the 50s and the 60s. It's still better than the rest, but it's still not good enough for the challenges that are to come. So are we going to make the decisions with respect to uh, infrastructure. Uh, the third area has to do with education. And again, this also implicates immigration. It also implicates the whole question of standards. But education is absolutely critical because this is the seed corn for the future. It's really the long-term investments in American competitiveness, uh, technology generation, and so on and so forth. So again, you come back quickly to a domestic agenda uh, 
which unfortunately does not often, you know, have we don't have universal consensus on what the best policies around many of these issues are. But I don't think they can be avoided indefinitely without grave damage to our interests. Immigration policy, physical infrastructure, education, uh, this really drives home the point that we should be focusing on U.S. strengths um, uh, as, as the core tenet of our policies. So, to, to Michael, did you want to weigh in on this question? Let me question? weigh in with yes. one more. I agree with Ashley on, on those as, as the big issues. And, and one other milestone to answer your question in the next, say, six to 12 months, let's say next couple of years, um, you know, we're running up to a presidential election in 2020 here. Um, to the extent that the US political system writ large can move beyond gridlock and move beyond intensely partisan politics on every issue and realize that on some of these fundamental questions, whether those are the domestic ones that Ashley just mentioned, or in, in foreign policy, this big looming competition with China, uh, this ongoing competition with Russia, can we take the beginnings of this kind of bipartisan support on some of, of those issues and actually get back to a much more functional rather than dysfunctional governance in Washington, D.C.? Mm. Um, because that would be a sign that um, even with legitimate differences about how best to solve any particular problem, uh, there's at least an ability to work together to get things done. Because that, frankly, is one of the, um, that's one of the selling points that uh, Beijing is using right now to, to call into doubt the legitimacy of democratic systems, you know, its inability to get things approved, to get things passed. Um, you know, that's, to me, that's equally important in terms of the specific policy priorities, just the, the process of governance needs to be restored. In fact, I think if you don't address this at the core of the issues of polarization in American politics, we will never be able to find the solutions we want on those empirical issues that we talked about. Uh, there's a fascinating essay with a lot of data by I think Kenneth Schultz in the most recent issue of the Washington Quarterly. And it's a very dispiriting essay because he looks at data from the 70s and he finds that the degree of polarization in American politics as represented by the voting behaviors on Capitol Hill has never been higher. And what that tells me is that in the last years of the Cold War, because the data goes back to the 70s, there was still, for all the disagreements, right, there was still a common set of convergences that allowed a policy of containment to be successfully implemented. Whereas today, the divergences are so stark that it is simply not clear that we would be able to maintain a policy of, you know, credible balancing vis-a-vis -vis China uh, in ways that we maintained the policy of containment 30 years ago. And, and that really is, is a humbling, uh, that is a humbling insight because it has real consequences for our ability to run this race and win. This has been a fascinating, wide-ranging conversation. Um, we've hit country topics, functional topics. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Uh, on the idea of how to, the U.S. can best manage its relations with uh, Chinese, China, and this competition going forward? Well, I want to just emphasize one point which tends to get lost in the discussion about competition. That competition with China will not be 
like competition with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union set out to reject the international system and replace it with something that was radically different. China wants to renovate an existing system to serve its interests. China's success has been a product of globalization, and so it does not want to jettison globalization and replace it with some kind of an autarkic system, which makes our task harder because we have to find creative ways of cooperating with China where we can, even as we compete. And those kinds of mixed strategies don't come easily to the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, we love open-ended competition because the battle lines are clear, the strategies are clear. It's easy to get domestic support for a simple strategy that everyone can understand. But a strategy that by definition is mixed, a strategy that by definition has to be subtle and nuanced, is hard to gain consensus for in any democratic polity. And so how well we are good with respect to our own nimbleness is really what you know the future is going to test of us. Um, and so when we talk about the competition with China, I think we should not lose sight of the fact that there will be very important areas where we will cooperate. And we do not want to sacrifice the potential for that cooperation whenever possible, simply because uh, competition with China has now become the new lead motive of the day. So our sophistication in being able to handle this competition is something that we need to need to think and reflect about and pay attention to. In a world of dominating social media and Twitter, it's hard to put mixed approach to competition as a slogan. <laughs> That's I, right. I, I recognize the challenge. But it is critical. Um, and then this, this is a very important point. Um, it, it would be easy to imagine a competition with China in a heavy-handed way becoming a competition with all things Chinese. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the challenge here for the United States is that, um, let's go back to things we've talked about in this conversation. As the leader of a liberal, open, democratic global order, the United States is in competition with China, partly because China's a rising great power, but more because China's a rising great power with an authoritarian, state-driven econ economy. Um, you know, if, if China post-1989 had gone in a different direction, if, if Tiananmen had happened differently and China had moved in a more democratic way, we would be having a very different conversation today. Mm. And so I think um, going back to some U.S. strengths, you know, sort of the values that underpin um, the U.S. position in the world, uh, the soft power that the United States enjoys, uh, the, the benefits that democratic systems tend to have over alternatives, these are things that we have to, to keep firmly in the front of our minds as we think about the competition with China, and especially as we think about some of the ramifications of that uh, in various dimensions across U.S. foreign and, and domestic policy. I guess I'll just say, if you thought that this conversation was comprehensive and wide-ranging, um, you know, our, our publication this year, the Strategic Asia volume, covers a number of additional uh, issues and functional areas that we didn't even get to touch on here today. Um, we have chapters on international financial architecture, how Chinese uh, values might uh, influence the international order, what they perceive to be the values that they want to um, embed in the international order. Um, we have chapter on maritime strategy. Um, and 
and another chapter on overseas development assistance. So a number of additional avenues to explore um, and just would encourage our listeners to um, take a look at, at those chapters as they you know, peak interest. Thank you, Ali. The new volume is titled Strategic Asia 2019, China's Expanding Strategic Ambitions. You can buy it at mbr.org slash strategic Asia. That's mbr.org slash strategic Asia uh, or at Amazon. If you're a government employee or a member of the media, we offer complimentary copies. Just reach out to media at nbr.org. Uh, this conversation has been comprehensive, wide ranging. Let me add nuanced. So thank you for that touch. Ali, Ashley, Michael, uh, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a terrific conversation. Thanks, man. Thank you. Pleasure.